Well, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, as we uh, begin, uh, in some ways, a new study today. We finished up 1 Samuel last Lord's Day. We're beginning 2 Samuel today, but as I've mentioned before, in the Hebrew Bible, this is one book. Um, this is one story. We have a, a division in our Christian Old Testament, and it's a, a right place to divide because we see uh, the first Samuel section really ends with the death of Saul, and the second, marked as Second Samuel, begins now uh, with David hearing of that death and of David becoming the king. And so we come now to Second Samuel chapter one, where although Saul, Saul has already died, uh, this is the chapter that records David hearing of that death. And as we walk through this passage together, as we walk through this study together, I want you to think about how we might expect David to respond to this news. Saul is the one who has been pursuing David. He has sought to kill David. You remember in their early interactions where they were at a table together and Saul threw a spear at David. This is the man who has been responsible for David fleeing and running for years now to the point that he's found himself outside of the promised land, outside of Israel, living among the enemies of God's people, among the Philistines. Think about how you would expect him to respond to the news of Saul's death, and then consider what we find in today's passage. So we're going to look at the first half of this chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 16, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, uh, if you would stand together for the reading of God's word. When we stand out of reverence, this is the holy word of God, handed down to us through generations, and this is what that word says. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, 
and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David saw, uh, excuse me, David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called to one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. If you would, pray with me. Father, as we come to ancient words and an ancient text, to help us to recognize how these ancient words apply to us today, help us to see how the events that are recorded in 2 Samuel 1, how they point us forward to the gospel of Jesus, help us to see how this passage calls for a response from us this morning and help us to respond in repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you know the name Adoniram Judson. He was a Baptist missionary to Burma for nearly 40 years in the 1800s. But being a missionary in Burma was not what he had always planned to do. In fact, there was a time in Judson's life where uh, this would have seemed like the, the, the farthest thing out there for him to commit his life to. Uh, Judson grew up in a Christian home. He grew up understanding the gospel, but when he went away to college, he was influenced by people who were skeptics. Uh, people who did not believe the gospel, did not believe in the Bible at all. And one of those became one of his dearest and closest friends, a man named Jacob Ames. Uh, Jacob was a non-believer. Jacob was a skeptic. And, and Jacob mocked the very faith that Judson had grown up in. And so Judson, too, walked down the road of walking away from his faith. In fact, he would later record that when he turned 20 years old, he wrote to his parents that he no longer was a part of the Christian faith. And this broke their hearts. And not long after this, Judson was traveling and he came upon an inn and decided to stay in that inn for the evening. And as he got settled into his room, he couldn't help but hear a lot of commotion going on in the room next to him. In fact, as he listened, he could hear someone wailing and groaning, someone in excruciating pain. And so he inquired of the innkeeper about what was going on, and he learned that there was a young man next to him in that room who was dying. And the doctor had been there that evening and said they, were, they would be surprised if he made it through the night. And so there Judson laid in his room in that inn, and all night long all he could hear was the pain and the anguish and the grief of this person dying in the room next to him. Well, eventually those groans went away. The next morning, as daylight rose, there was no more noise. And Judson, as he was packing his things to leave, he encountered that same innkeeper, and he asked about the man next door. Had he taken a turn for the better? Was he okay now? 
The innkeeper said, no, he's gone, the poor fellow. And to that he said that, or Judson said, do you know who this young man was? The innkeeper said, oh yes, the young man was from a college in Providence. His name was Ames, Jacob Ames. The very friend that had led Judson to abandon his faith was the one that laid there in anguish and pain and died in a room next to Judson. And this struck Judson. That this overwhelmed him as he considered that this was not a coincidence. This was not just some chance that the God that he had walked away from in his providence had placed him in that place in that moment. And he was profoundly impacted by the death of his friend. One biographer would later write it this way, uh, referring to how Judson responded. He said, Judson could hardly move. He stayed there for hours pondering the death of his unbelieving friend. If Ames were right, then this was a meaningless event. But Judson could not believe it. That hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Ames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not, be pure coincidence. The death of his friend had a profound impact on Judson. It would lead to his genuine conversion in the faith in which he would place his full trust in the Lord Jesus. He would go on to serve the Lord Jesus on the mission field for the rest of his life, all because of the impact of the news of a death. As we come to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we encounter another man who is dramatically impacted by the news of a death, this time David. Now, as we know in David's story, uh, David at this point is not an unbeliever. David is not a skeptic. David has not completely abandoned his faith in God. But uh, David has had his ups and downs. Uh, David has had his challenges to walk by faith. And as we came to the end of 1 Samuel, we saw really a turning point for David where at rock bottom, God got his attention in such a way that he turned to the Lord, that he trusted in the Lord. Now we will see, as we walk now through 2 Samuel, that David will still have his struggles. But as we put his story together, along with so many things he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Psalms, we see in David a repentant heart. We see in David a changed heart. And we see in David one who at this point in his story is profoundly impacted by the news of the death of Saul. But before we look at how David is impacted, I want to start by looking at a central character in this passage, the one who brings the news of Saul's death to David, this Amalekite. We'll begin there with the first point in your outline where we see the Amalekite saw Saul's death as an opportunity for personal gain. And so we're going to look at the difference between how the Amalekite and how David responded to Saul's death. And I think what we see as we walk through this is that they reacted very differently. That the Amalekite acted out of self-interest, out of a desire for personal gain. 
How do we know that? We'll just walk through the passage and see. Beginning there in the first verse, you see that the Amalekite comes into David's camp and, and he obviously looks like he's come from battle, that he's come from some type of turmoil. His clothes and his face are all dirty and, and worn and tattered. And he comes, and you'll notice in the text there, that he bows down before David to pay homage. Now this is an indication to us that this Amalekite knew exactly who David was. This Amalekite knew exactly who David was to be. He knew the news, as so many others did, that David had been anointed to be the next king of Israel. And so he is coming into his camp, and he's treating him like a king, like the next in line to the throne. David, of course, asked where this man came from, and the Amalekite shares with David that he's come from Israel's camp. He's come from the battle. Now at this point, the indication is, David doesn't know what's happened on the front lines. As you'll remember, uh, David and his men were ready to go fight in this battle, but not on behalf of the Israelites, on behalf of the Philistines, or at least that's how it appeared. Uh, the Philistines were suspicious that David was just doing all of this so that he could betray them and turn against them. Well, we don't really know that. The scripture's not clear there, but what is clear is that the Philistines rejected David. They, they sent David and his army back to this, this territory that had been given to them by one of the Philistine kings, one of the Philistine lords. And so David's been days away from the battlefield. He, he has no idea exactly what's been going on back on the battlefront. And so when this Amalekite come, of course, the first thing he wants to know is, well, how did it go? Well, what happened? How were Saul and Jonathan and the, the, the army of Israel, who, who won in this campaign against the Israelites and the Philistines? And the Amalekite shares with him that not only has Israel lost this battle, but Israel's lost their king. And they've lost their prince. And Saul and Jonathan are dead. And David then asks, how's he know? <laughs> I mean, perhaps David in this moment is overwhelmed with shock. Uh, perhaps in this moment David's hoping that that this kind of came to the Amalekite by way of rumor. They didn't really know. Or perhaps he's just curious. This is what happened to them. And the Amalekite then goes on to tell this story of how he came upon Saul and how Saul was in anguish. He was laying there on his spear. The Philistines were pursuing and were almost there. And Saul has this interchange, this exchange with the Amalekite through which he asked the Amalekite to, to kill him because he'd fallen on his spear, and the spear hadn't killed him, and then the Amalekite kills him and brings the crown and the armlet to David. And that all sounds well and good, but you may read that, and if you were with us last week, you might stop and consider, well, that, that doesn't exactly sound like what we just studied a week ago. I mean, 1 Samuel ends in chapter 31 with a very clear record of the death of Saul. Where Saul was dead. Uh, Saul had asked, if you'll remember, his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer would not do it because, again, Saul was the, the Lord's anointed. And so Saul, the scripture says, fell on his sword. And when he fell on his sword, what we read in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel is that the armor bearer sees that happen, sees that Saul is dead, and then takes his own life, falls on his own sword. 1 Samuel ends with a clear picture that Saul is dead and that's how he died. 
Then we come to 2 Samuel, and we read a little bit of a different account, a different version. And so the question is, which one's correct? Well, I'll give you a hermeneutical tip, a, a way to interpret the Scripture, just something to help you along the way. That if you ever have a choice between the inspired writer of Scripture and an Amalekite, trust the inspired writer of Scripture. <laughs> Everything we know about Amalekites at this point, there, there's nothing positive about them. They were the enemies of God's people. They, they, they hear the Amalekite says he's a sojourner, but the Amalekites is a people. The reason they sojourned is because they went from city to city raiding and pillaging and stealing. That they were always looking to get ahead and to profit from others' misery. And I, I think that's a picture we have of the Amalekite here. And I'm not alone in that. Every commentary that I went through this week was in agreement that here we have a picture of this Amalekite lying. The question is, well, why was he lying? Why make up this story about killing King Saul? And I think the answer to that is that the Amalekites saw Saul's death as an opportunity for personal gain. He likely came across the body of Saul and saw Saul laying there on his sword and then started thinking about how this might profit him. He probably thought about how David would respond to the news of Saul's death. I asked you to think about this already. I mean, consider... Saul had been a terror to David. Saul hadn't just been a thorn in David's side. He had been a spear in David's side. He had pushed him and aggravated him and tried to kill him time and time again. And then to make matters worse, Saul at times would say to David, well, I'm so sorry I did these things. Of course you're going to be the next king. He would appear to have a changed heart, but nothing would ever really change. David's life had been profoundly impacted by Saul and his sin. I mean, you think back, for example, to David's first marriage, to Saul's daughter. What happened to that marriage? Saul took his daughter away from David and gave her to another man to marry that man. I mean, there's no love lost between these two men. And so our expectation at this point at least from a fleshly perspective, would be that of the Amalekite. That David would rejoice in the death of Saul. That he might even celebrate at the death of Saul. Some of you remember a number of years ago when the evil dictator Saddam Hussein was executed. And if you remember that event, you likely Remember, the evening news that night was filled with images of people celebrating in the streets. People in Baghdad who were tearing down statues of Saddam Hussein. People in the streets who were, who were burning pictures of him. And they were dancing and they were singing and they were celebrating. Why? Because Saddam Hussein was evil. He was wicked. He had made their lives miserable, and now he was dead. And this was reason for great rejoicing among those that Hussein had terrorized. In our flesh, the expectation would be that David would respond that way. And not just David, but his men. Remember how David got this army to begin with. 
that David has fled from Saul. David is hiding in a cave. And then there are hundreds of men who come to join him. Why? Because Saul had been a terror to them as well. Hey, he had been exactly what God said he would be. He had taxed them and he had taken from them and he had burdened them to the point that they could take no more. And now that they sided with David, Saul wanted to kill them as well. We would expect celebration. I think the Amalekite expected celebration. He, he had probably expected reward. Perhaps he thought that when he brought this crown and brought this armlet before David, that not only would David celebrate, but David would reward him for bringing them. Perhaps David would welcome this Amalekite into his kingdom, into his court. Perhaps he would give him a position in his military, in his army. Chances are, the farthest thing from his mind was what would happen next. Which takes us to that second point, point two. David and his men grieved and mourned over Saul's death. That they didn't celebrate. There was no party in the streets. There was no tearing down of statues. No, there was grief and there was mourning. And the only thing that was torn were the clothes they had on them. Is they ripped them. This was a sign of great lament and great mourning. And you can imagine the Amalekite's surprise when he sees this. His expectation was a celebration and a feast. The response he got was men who fasted and who wept. And the fundamental question is, why? Why were they so overwhelmed by grief? Well, you can walk down through this and see why Jonathan was dead. And Jonathan, we know from our study in 1 Samuel, was, was the closest, dearest friend of David. Jonathan was one of the first to acknowledge that God had indeed anointed and called David to be the next king over Israel. Jonathan, in a sense, had sworn his allegiance to David. Jonathan had protected David time and time again. Jonathan was loved by David and loved by David's men. And now he was dead. And that was reason for grief and for mourning. But it wasn't just Jonathan, that the army of the Israelites. You think about the, the picture we have here. David had started out as part of this army. David was a commander in this army. David probably was thinking about all the men who were under his care and his training who had just lost their lives. That these men who had fled to be a part of David's army had once been a part of this army. These were their friends. These were some of the closest people to them. Perhaps brothers and cousins and relatives. And now they too had died, and that's reason for grief and for mourning. And then there's just the state of Israel at this point. And we saw this at the close of 1 Samuel, that, 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 that after the Philistines conquered the Israelites, that the ones who weren't a part of the army, who just from a distance who were watching it, the Israelites, they fled the promised land. They gave their cities over to the Philistines. And now all this news is coming to David and to his men. They've got the death of their good friends and the death of Jonathan. And now they've just got the state of Israel. And this was cause for great lament. But we can't overlook that David and his men also grieved the death of Saul. Saul, despite all his wickedness and evil, and sin. Saul was still the Lord's 
anointed. David would not raise his sword against the Lord's anointed. And now the Lord's anointed was dead. And that was reason for he and his men to weep and to mourn and to grieve. Friends, it's a, it's a reminder to us that no matter who it is that dies, that death should be mourned and grieved and lamented. I've had conversations with many of you about death. I've been with you at funerals. I've talked to you, some of you, about your own plans. And I'll often hear Christians, in talking about death, talk about how that they don't want people to be sad when they die. They, they don't want people to be grieving when they die. They, they don't want there to be tears. I've, I've had people say to me, listen, when I die, I want there to be a celebration. I want it to be a party. I want there to be balloons there. I want everybody to be excited and happy because I'm with Jesus now, and that, that's cause for celebration. Don't cry for me when I'm in paradise. And I understand but fundamentally, we need to understand that death is something to be grieved because there was a day when we were in paradise and didn't have to go through death to get there. That there was a day in the garden where Adam and Eve, they, they were with the Lord, they were in paradise, that they didn't have to die to get there. That they didn't have to go through a sin-ridden life. They didn't have to go through suffering and turmoil. They didn't have to go through all the scars and carnage of sin in this world to get there. No, they were born into, placed under the sovereign care of God, paradise. And for us to get to that place, we go through much, and there is certainly much to grieve and to lament in death. Because, friends, death is an enemy. Death is a result of the fall. Death is a reminder to us of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden and how all of us have sinned ever since. Death reminds us that we are deserving of the wrath of a holy God for our sin. Death indeed should be grieved and lamented. It should have an impact on all of us. And it certainly had an impact on David and his men. But something that's different for us than for them is that we at this point in salvation history, as we grieve, as we mourn, as we lament, we're instructed to do that with a hope in Christ. And so we don't just grieve like the rest of the world. And we certainly don't grieve like the unbelieving world. Now we read about how we're to grieve in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep. This is referring to people who have died. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And so the message here is not... Don't grieve at all because you have hope. It's No, you are to grieve, but you grieve as those who have hope. Why? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why should these words encourage us? It's not because they say we're not going to die. It's because they say that we can die with a hope in Jesus who died in our place on the cross that we might have eternal life, that we might enter into God's paradise one day. And as we face death, we face death with that promise and with that hope that every body that we commit to this earth is going to be raised one day. That when we die, if we are in Christ, we are present with the Lord. There is much to hope in. There is much to rejoice in. But we also grieve and we also lament. Because this is not how it should be. And this is not how it always will be. One day death will be no more. And until that day we grieve, but we grieve as those who have And I believe we see a hopeful grief in David and his men as they lament for Saul, as they lament for Jonathan, and we'll see more of this as we continue in 2 Samuel, that there's a forward-looking and a forward focus. One last point before we leave this text. Point three. Don't make the same mistake that the Amalekite made. Don't make the same mistake that the Amalekite made. So in order for us to have hope, we need to trust in the Lord. In order for us to have this hope, we need to respond rightly to God's word. And we have an example here, a picture here of one who did not. And so just getting that instruction, me giving you that point, don't make the same mistake as the Amalekite did at first glance, might not make a lot of sense to us. You might not have walked in. In fact, I'm just going to guess. Nobody walked in this morning thinking, I sure hope I don't make a mistake like an Amalekite today. I'm guessing you've never had that thought in your entire life. And so that warning doesn't seem to carry much weight. It's like years ago, Sandy and I were with the kids at a zoo, and we were walking by this lion exhibit And here were these lions, and here were bars, and there was a sign that said, do not stick your head or hands into the lion's enclosure. I can guarantee you of this, there's never been a moment in my God-given life that I've been tempted to stick my head or my hands into the enclosure of a lion. I don't need a sign like that. I don't need that warning. I'm not going to do that. It seems like a needless thing to say. And yet the reason I give this warning this morning is because when we dig a little deeper, I think we are tempted to be like the Amalekite. We're not going to face this same situation. We're not going to walk these same steps. But I do think we are tempted with the same type of sin. And what is that? Well, the Amalekite's sin here is that he thought he could buy his way into David's favor. He thought that he could bring the right things to the table to make himself look better. He he thought he could lie his way into David's court. He thought he could spin things in such a way that they made him look better and would bring him to the table of 
the king. He was sadly mistaken. As a consequence of his sin, this deception, David has him executed. Now, David, I don't believe at this point, has any idea that the Amalekite's lying to him. But this lie cost him his life. It's quite ironic (laughs) that the very lie that he thought would give him a better life ends his life. So, So how is it then that we might be tempted in this same way? Well, the reality is this, friends. One day, we will stand before the Lord's anointed. And as we prepare for that day, that there are many of us who, like the Amalekite, were deceived in our thinking that somehow we're going to spin things or twist things or present things in such a way that the Lord's anointed will welcome us into His court, into His kingdom, to sit at His table that somehow if we just say well well, i tried really hard i did better than a lot of people or maybe we think we can buy our way in well look at look at what i did look at what i brought look at what i bought look at what i gave i mean don't you understand all these things that i i did for the church and for 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 you and I wrote checks to missions, and I gave money, and I helped out people. Or maybe we think we're going to go through life like Jacob Ames. Maybe as skeptics, as people who struggle with belief, we think, well, if God exists, he'll make a way for people like me, because I'm just going to live a good moral life, and I'm going to be a good neighbor, and I'm going to follow the golden rule. And surely that will be sufficient. However it is, you might be tempted. Hear what the Word of God says. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. The truth of the matter is, friends, we will all die. And we will all face the Lord. And on that day, the the only thing that will admit us into God's kingdom, the the only thing that opens up those gates to glory is trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's putting our full hope and trust in the Lord's anointed. It's not trusting in ourselves. It's not presenting our resume of all the things we've done. It, It is fundamentally putting our hope and our trust in Jesus. Is that where your hope is today? I know the right answer. You know the right answer. It's yes, yes, my hope's in Jesus. But friend, is your hope in Christ today? Have you indeed confessed Christ as your Lord? Is Christ on the throne of your life? Is is He the one calling the shot? Have you repented and placed your trust in Him? And if you have not, but you think somehow there's some other way, then friend, you are deceived. And the call from Scripture today to you is heed the warning that we learn from this Amalekite. Heed the warning that we learn from Jacob Ames. Heed the warning from God's Word that tells us clearly 
It's appointed once for us to die, and after that comes judgment. The good news of the gospel is, if your trust is in Jesus, then you are judged according to the righteousness of Jesus. And God will certainly welcome you into that kingdom. But if you're trusting in anything else, friend, the invitation for you is to turn and trust in Christ today. And so I pray that you'll do that, and I would ask you to pray that with me. So if you would stand together as I pray for us, and as we come into this time of response. Father God, we do indeed thank you for your word, and I pray, God, that through this ancient text, we might learn today how we are to rightly respond to the free offer of the gospel. The gospel that tells us that we have all sinned and fall short of your glory. And that the wages of our sin is death. The gospel that teaches us that you demonstrate your love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the gospel that calls us, if we will confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. That he indeed is the Lord's anointed. And believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The gospel that reminds us. That all, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray, God, for that saving work today as we come now to this time of response. And we ask that in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, friends, as we sing our hymn of response, O Great God, we invite you to sing and we invite you to respond. And that is a primary way we respond to God's word is through acknowledging these great truths as we sing them. And we invite you to come as well. I'll be available to counsel with you, to pray with you. If God is, is leading you to take that step of obedience to come and, and to confess Christ as your Lord, to take that next step of faith in believers' baptism, perhaps he's leading you to come and start the process of joining this church family. It may be that you just need someone to pray with you, and I'd be honored to do that this morning. So we invite you to sing, and as we sing, we invite you to come as the Lord leads.